This week on High Story, we're staying in Japan to take a look at a series of murders that took place in Osaka from the years of 1985 to 1994. Among the bars, hostess stands, sushi shops, snack bars, restaurants, and clothing stores, many of these businesses would at one time or another host the subject of today's topic. While many of those who would interact with Yasutoshi Kamata regarded him as mild-mannered and soft-spoken, there was a monster lying in wait just beneath the surface. Today we discuss this short but inquisitive story of the Osaka Ripper. Hello again, and welcome back to High Story. I'm Matt. I am once again your host, and as usual, Tish is over here right next to me. We're in my closet today. Thought the acoustics in here might be a little bit better. Last week's episode, recorded in my bedroom. Really big room. Walls are a little bit too far apart. The echo was kind of throwing me off a little bit, so hopefully I don't get any of that in here, and so far it sounds like the thing to do. So what do you say we get into this? Thank you to everybody who listened to last week's episode on the history of sushi. I hope you guys learned a lot. I hope you ate some sushi after that. I hope you had a good weekend. Hope you had a good week up to this point. Hello. Happy Friday, everybody. I had a pretty good week so far. I, let's see, made a lot of money at work. I fixed my car again. Long story. Don't worry. Um, finally got around to doing my dishes for the entirety of the week. Made some potatoes, ate those right before I started recording this. But I'm starting to wonder now if... Did I wash the bowl that I ate out of? I can't remember. It was sitting on the counter, but... I don't remember if I washed it or not. Anyway, enough about that. Let's get into the episode today. This is a true crime episode. So, fair warning ahead of time, there will be a few murders and some kind of gruesome bits, but I'm going to attempt to keep it respectfully lighthearted. Just because it's true crime in nature doesn't necessarily mean you can't have fun. And this is a strange case in my opinion, because it seems like the more I read about it, just the more questions I had. He doesn't seem to follow any of the usual patterns present in most serial killer profiles. It could be that we just don't have access to the information needed to examine his psychological profile any deeper. Uh, arrest records and criminal background, not public information in Japan. So the few articles I was able to find that were also in a language I can read and comprehend were very few and far between. One of those I need to give some credit to, by the way. There's an article on Medium.com from user S.A. Osborne with a Z. A lot of the victim details I got from his article, and it's a pretty well-written piece as well. So, I also created an account there just to give him a follow. Not saying you have to do that, but follows are important to creators, so if you want to help, that's how you could do that. Now! Now, Tish! Yeah, she's not listening. Now, before we jump into this, I want to set up just a little bit of a timeline for this week's episode. We don't have a ton of information on his childhood, or really much of anything before the first victim. 
Details surrounding his formative years are sparse, and besides the handful of damning true crime articles online, there isn't really much to go on. Apart from being a shitbag serial killer who steals boxes of clothes from warehouses to resell to restaurant workers. So let's go through this brief, but honestly, sort of, kind of brutal timeline of when the murders took place. Then after that, I have so many questions! The, the more I, I'm telling you, the more I read, the more questions I had. I still have more after this. Like, I might not be done with all the research after this, but I've got enough to at least go on, so ignore that. Moving on, Yasutoshi Kamata, whom for most of this episode I will refer to as Toshi because it's a little bit shorter and easier to say, and I'm going to be saying it a lot, and I don't want to have to interrupt the flow of the show, so subtracting two syllables, not too difficult. I could put him back, but you know how it is. Toshi was born in 1940 on the mean streets of Ozu, Ehime, Japan. And actually, Ehime seems like a pretty nice place. Nestled onto the island of Shikoku on Japan's southwestern edge, today it's home to about 1.3 million people, and has remained relatively consistent in its population since about 1920. A few surges here and there, but most notably between 1940 and 1945, when the population jumped up by around 250,000 people. Gee, I wonder what happened in between those years that could have caused that. And while Ehime, which by the way, means lovely princess in Japanese. While it looks beautiful, a seaside town known for Mikan oranges, hot springs, museums, and quite a few TV shows and movies I've never heard of. No, we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about some way less desirable situations. Being the son of parents who ran a successful hotel, or Ryokan, the beginning of Toshi's story is fairly normal. The business did well, the family was fairly well off, Toshi even helped out by selling disposable chopsticks to other hotels around the city. No mention of any kind of abuse or mistreatment from his parents. As far as we know, he didn't set anything on fire. He's not a bedwetter. Uh, nothing alarming about his childhood that could be a trigger about what happens later. Nothing. Nothing. Normal childhood. Right up into his teenage years, everything seemed to be going well. Until it wasn't. His father passed away sometime when Toshi was a teenager, so he decided to move to Osaka to try to figure out his life. Apparently this was an unsuccessful attempt because he moves back home when he's about 20. Whilst back home, undoubtedly disappointed with how the Osaka trip went, he eventually meets a woman, falls in love, has a son and a daughter, but right here there's a bit of conflicting information which we'll go into a little bit deeper later on. Sometime after his kids are born, his wife is either caught having an affair and the two split up, or, what I think is the more likely story, she dies as well. Not certain of the cause of death, but based on what we're about to talk about, I think this is the most likely the truth. And so that's the version we're going to go forward with. So after his wife dies, he takes the kids and moves to the Nara Prefecture, which is about five hours away from his hometown of Ozu. There, he eventually gets remarried and finds work at a sock factory. Oh boy. And things at this point in his life are going just fucking great. His father passes away, his wife dies, he has two kids that I don't think he really wants anything to do with, he's bouncing all over Japan trying to make something please fucking work! And then he gets a job, and it's at a factory for socks. Can you imagine... 
starting life so much farther ahead than so many other kids, and going through all of that, the only job you're able to find to support your family is a mid-80s sock factory worker. Ugh. Well, if you can't imagine it, it's probably just as tumultuous at the Kamada residence as you're picturing in your head right now. And to accompany this picturesque vision of home life, it's right about here that Toshi's true nature starts to shine through. The couple would argue loudly and in front of the kids. Toshi would get extremely argumentative and violent, sometimes strangling his wife to the point his kids would have to pull him off of their mother. I don't think he was a particularly large man. Seems about average, but still, at that moment, he's only focused on one thing. And it's got to take a lot for these kids to get him to let go of his, of their mother's throat. Thankfully, he has at least a little bit of sense left in him and leaves his wife and kids, lands in Osaka for the final time. And as weird as it sounds, I think him abandoning his family is really the only happy ending we're going to get out of this story. Well, kinda, but yeah, you'll see. It'll make sense later. Once back in Osaka, Toshi goes full scumbag. Instead of finding an actual job, he gets a bike. Starts stealing a bunch of shit from various warehouses around the city and selling the contents to the city's restaurant workers. <laughs> I want to know what he was selling. What do you think he was selling? Clothes for sure. Um, maybe some pens? Notebooks? Sunglasses? Shoes? Cigarettes? Weed? Coke? Pepsi? Red Bull? <laughs> Maybe he just rides around on his bike in like a big-ass toggle coat, and whenever he spots a potential customer, he just jumps off his bike and flashes open his coat like the merchant in RE4? Yeah, no, probably not. Probably something way less conspicuous. But evidently, he was pretty good at it, so... If it, however he did it, he eventually sleezed his way to enough money to acquire 20 different apartments around the city. 20! This is a man, by the way, who couldn't figure out how to afford one apartment just a few years ago. To be fair, though, I guess sock money's never good enough. Especially at convenience stores. Don't, don't do that to people. Don't use sock money. Where you going, little kitty? Hey! Tish is up and around. She wants some attention. So I had to go pet her real quick. Sorry about that. Seriously, don't give people sock money. And if you have that much swagger to be getting away with charging high enough prices to be able to afford that many apartments, you know he's got to be hitting up some girls around town. Maybe you come with me and I'll get you all the Monster and Hot Cheetos you want. Or whatever the mid-80s Japanese equivalent to that would be. So things are going reasonably well for Toshi, aside from a few close calls with the police. And Toshi, get this, this is a shocker right here. Are you ready? Toshi liked to drink. I know, right? Captain of the G-Mob likes to booze it up when the sun goes down. Weird! G-Mob, by the way, is grown men on bikes. Those are the dudes in their 30s that you see riding through the streets with a backpack on, on a huffy, because they're out looking for more meth, because the only thing they can afford to get around town on is a bike, because they sold everything that they have, so they could go ride that bike to get more meth. Stay away from those guys. Anyway, back to Toshi. While out to drinks at a bar on May 14th, 1985, with some of his buddies, he comes across a woman. Unfortunately, this woman would become the Osaka Ripper's first victim. 46-year-old Fusai Azuma was married, had three children, and a good life. 
Maybe not quite as good as she wanted, as she was at the bar alone under a fake name. Who knows? That There's no other information I was able to find. And Fusai is the only name I've seen mentioned, so I'm going with that's her real name, and I don't know what the fake name was. Like, no idea. Not even a guess. And after chatting it up with Toshi for a while at the bar, the two go back to one of his many, many apartments. The two argue for what I'm not certain, but I have a theory later, and... The two argue about what? <laughs> the two argue about what I'm not certain, but I have a theory later, and the arguing eventually leads to Fusai rejecting his sexual advances. This angers Toshi, so instead of being a normal person on a bad date and asking her to politely leave, he instead strangles her right there in the apartment. But that's not all. All right, brace yourselves here. After he strangles her, Toshi dismembers the body, puts it in a box, and then the next day gets a rental car and drives out to a forest somewhere along the highway in Kobe, Japan, dumps the remains, and they will not be discovered until 1995. <laughs> Barely a month had gone by when Toshi meets another young lady. He's like 45 at this point, by the way, and Midori Chinin was only 19. She worked in a healthcare facility for the disabled, after work one night, she goes out on the town after work. Toshi asks her out on a date to get sushi. Do you think they knew how sushi originated? You think they knew that? Like how all of you out there know it now? You're welcome. Anyway, Toshi asks her out on a sushi date, to which she unfortunately agreed. During the course of the evening, he invites her back to his place. Once again, finding himself in the presence of another young lady in his condo. Remember, this is one of about 20. I'm unclear as to why, but... She asked him for 10,000 yen, which is about $100 in the U.S., and he didn't like that. So he does what he did last time he argued with a woman in his apartment. He strangled her. He does dismember her, but with a bit of refinement this time. This time, he employs the use of vinyl sheets and saw blades and other tools. Then using a rental car, like a dumbass, drives out to Nara and dumps the body in a bamboo grove. Her body, however, is discovered the very next day. And here's a weird piece of this. After strangling and dumping Midori's body, he, for some reason, writes a letter to the police detailing which parts of her he cut, which sushi shop they went to, and he claims to be the, quote, monster with 21 faces, which is an entirely different, way crazier story that I want to talk about later, but it's a lot. Like, there's so much there. It, it involves Pocky. It's fucking crazy. But we'll get to that another episode. Fast forward about a year and a half later, all the way on the other side of the cool-off period. And this one is particularly gross, so super fair warning ahead of time. Kumiko Tsujikato was a nine-year-old third grader. Toshi approaches the poor girl as she was walking home from school. He asked her for directions and offered 200 yen for her help. She agreed, so he brought her back to his house, I don't know which one, where he then attempted to sexually assault her, but she started screaming really, really loud. So then he, in, he instead strangles her, boxes up the remains, and uses a rental car to dump the box in the mountains. God, that never gets any easier to read. Jesus. And then, alright, then after this, I don't get this at all. For some reason, he calls the girl's school, 
and tells them she's been kidnapped and demands a ransom of 30 million yen or he would or he would kill her. But she's already dead at this point. I don't know what the purpose of this was. Did he actually think that might work? Hey, maybe I'm persuasive enough with all my illegal clothing business salesman charisma to extort an elementary school. What? Why would you think that? Fuck. <sighs> Anywho's-its. Police in the community at large are searching for this poor girl, but they don't come across the box until May. And this is, I think, this has got to be the saddest thing I've ever heard. But you know what? Guys, we're in this together, so you got to hear it with me. Police said the girl, Kumiko, they said she had not been dismembered because she was already small enough to fit in the box. <sighs> but how about this? Let's fast forward a little bit more to something good that happens. Kinda. Yasutoshi Kamada was arrested for theft in 1989, but released shortly thereafter. <sighs> so close. But he was arrested again for theft in 1991, but this time until 1993. So they had him for two years. They, they had him. If they'd only been able to link him to the murders, but they just couldn't get it yet. They just didn't have the connection yet. And unfortunately, after his release from actual prison, and not long after either, mind you, enter into the story Kazue Suda, 45. She worked at a bar that Toshi liked, and Toshi would frequent the establishment flashing wads of cash. <laughs> He's flashing his cash wad again, little kitty. He's flashing it like he owns the place. She doesn't care still. Eventually, Kazue noticed him and he offered to pay her for a date. And once back to the apartment, the same exact pattern happens. She asks how much she'll be paid. Toshi flips his shit, strangles her, cuts her up, puts her in a box, and dumps the box in a forest off the highway by use of what? A rental car. March 1994... 38-year-old waitress Kimiko Nakano, who would often buy clothes from Toshi, and the two were quite friendly with each other, she would also meet the same fate as the other women. Will you stop making noise over there? So Toshi takes her back to an apartment. Don't know which one. There's a lot of them. She asks for money. He gets big mad, strangles her, dismembers her, puts her in a box, rents a car, dumps the box in the woods. The exact same thing again! Repetition, repetition, pattern, every time. It's the same thing, every time. So how does this asshole finally get caught? Well, February 1995, been caught stealing again. And yes, it's playing in my head right now too. Thank you, Jane's Addiction. Love that song. Might be the name of the episode. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. We'll see. But police start to look a little bit closer at his previous encounters with them and realize... He's a pretty strong contender for those murders. They were also able to link the rental cars. Remember those? Remember all of the rental cars for all of these? You think I mentioned them for a reason, maybe? Maybe? It's alright. They were able to link the rental cars to him by comparing the miles. The mileage between his home and dump site were very similar. What a surprise! And he also frequented many of the businesses around where he had taken Midori, where witnesses say she was last seen with a middle-aged man. Hmm, who could that have been? Personal, re personal relationships between Kazue and Kimiko are found out from his illegal clothing business, and do you remember that letter from earlier? 
the one where he claimed to be the monster with 21 faces? Well, I left out one very important detail, kind of on purpose. They found a bunch of fingerprints on the envelope. So now that they had him in custody, they were able to compare his in-person fingerprints to the fingerprints found on the envelope and sent them off to the Nara police and surprise fucking surprise, it's a match. After combining resources, the Nara and Osaka police forces have enough to link together the murders of Midori, Kazue, and Kimiko. All three victims were strangled, dismembered, and dumped in the woods. So when cornered with this information, Toshi gives a full confession, including Fusai, the married mother of three, and the police, by the way, didn't even know about it, and Kumiko, the third grader. He also denied making the ransom call after finally being arrested and confessing to all the murders. Uh, the Japan Acoustic Research Institute conducted a voice print test using the phone call he made to the school, but... They only found that 10 of the 121 voice prints were a match. So during this research, I was having a weird day. And after I was, I was going to bed, I started to research a bunch of different things on forensic voice print technology and how it applies to court cases. And it is super fascinating to me, but I will save you guys some time. Unless you're planning on being an audio engineer or are a musician of some kind or are interested in... For, it's, it's such a boring read. It reads like a Bible verse, and it's not even that credible in court. Most of the time, it's considered extremely unreliable because the very specific conditions to get a piece of evidence, an audio piece of evidence, they're very few and far between. So, kind of interesting, but... Yeah, just kind of a boring read, too. And I'm not sure why, but for some reason, the case was bisected. One for the first two murders, and the other for the last three. Trial begins March 1996. Yasutoshi pleads innocent, claiming he's only an accomplice in disposing of the bodies, and that, you know what? No. A friend of mine did it. I just helped him dispose of them. But a friend of mine, that guy over there, he he's the one who killed him. He, him, he did it, not me. Not Yasutoshi. Him. Well, that doesn't fly, and they find him guilty as fuck, and he is sentenced to death for the for two of the murders. However, he is acquitted of the ransom charge. There's just not enough evidence. From 2000 to 2005, there's a series of appeals, and he's continued to deny the murders the entire time. Says the police beat a confession out of him, claiming police, bleh, police brutality. And the Supreme Court upholds the conviction on July 8th. That's today! I swear to God I didn't plan this. Fast forward to March 2016. Fast forward to March 2016. That was a weird emphasis there. After spending 11 years on death row, he's executed at the age of 75 by hanging. And that, my friends, will bring us to the conclusion of today's story. Alright, show's over. Get out. I'm just kidding. I have a shitload more questions after reading about this guy. Toshi, for all accounts, had a pretty decent upbringing. His parents weren't known to be abusive. He didn't act out. He did pretty well in school, and he didn't have any kind of previous criminal record. And this is out of the ordinary for a lot of different reasons. Generally, when talking about serial killers, there's an escalation to their depravity. But he didn't start killing until he was already 45. And like I said earlier, there's also very little information about this guy. It's possible he could have just gotten sloppy with these murders, and these are just the ones we know about. And only a few of his 
21 or 22, whatever it was, apartments were mentioned. And I have to think if someone who makes a living by stealing enough to purchase almost two dozen living spaces, probably at least a few of those are less than legal reasons. So why? Why do, why do any of this? I'm going to cover my own ass here and just say blanket speculation for until I say otherwise. This is all speculation. This is all my thoughts, and I'm not claiming any of this to be true. It's just thoughts I have about it. I think if I had anything to point to, I'd say it started with his dad passing away, followed shortly by his wife's passing. Two extraordinarily traumatic events happening so close to one another has to be incredibly damaging. So here's my theory. And again, theory. Theory. T-H-E-O-R-Y. Theory. Personal thought. I'm only basing this off personal thought and opinion. His wife dying. This is what I think the biggest catalyst for his behavior is. I think... I think a lot of his anger towards women stems from her passing because he's angry with her for dying and leaving him with two kids that he wanted nothing to do with. Why he didn't want kids, I don't know, but this would sort of help explain his relationship with his next wife. Perhaps he was angry at her for not being the wife that had already passed. Sometimes your brain reacts that way. Our brains are really weird. They're wired to protect us, and it often manifests itself in really unusual ways, but this one seems particularly unusual. Maybe his first wife was better with the kids. Maybe one of the things they argued about was money. I mean, he was a sock factory worker in the 80s. After I did a lot of digging, I found the wages he would have likely made were, as you might guess, not great, especially for being the sole provider of a family of four. So he lashes out in anger at her for reminding him of what he'll never have again. But here's what I have the biggest problem with. I don't understand why the first time he murders somebody, or the first time we hear of him murdering somebody, he automatically goes to dismemberment. I think, again, speculation, that Fusai was just the first victim that we know about. Most serial killers, or really any first-time murderer that I can recall, aren't very good at murder in general yet. Many times, the first time is very sloppy and escalates upwards and is refined along the way to dismemberment, but never first kill. At least, not that I can think of, anyway. I don't... Can you think of one? I I can't think of first kill dismemberments off the top of my head. There might be, but I don't know for sure. I'll have to look into that after this, but... And with that many different apartments to hide out in, to always have somewhere nearby to escape to if you need to lay low... Having acquired the apartments through illegal means and skirting the fringes of legality and society, I have to think there's more to this than just what we have. And why so late in life? He was already 45, and that's just such an incredibly late start, and this whole thing is so weird to me, and this whole thing is so weird, but I had so much fun researching this. Anyway, that's the Osaka Ripper. Thank you again so much for listening. That was so much fun, you guys. Let me know some of your thoughts on this, too. Uh, I'm going to try to figure out how to get this on iTunes and you know what, maybe come by the high story Facebook page and leave some comments there and show some love, whatever you got to do on that page, like share all that nonsense, all that stuff. You can also feel free to do that stuff here as well. If you have the Podbean app, but I know most people don't, 
not that worried about it just yet. But most importantly, I hope you guys had as much fun as I did. This was a ton of fun to research, and I hope I was able to get some of that fun out there and you beautiful people out there in listener world. So if you come back next week, which, by the way, will be Sunday, not Friday. I think releasing episodes on Sundays will give me just a little bit more time to make better content. But if you want to do this again next week on Sunday, I'm going to be talking about the tornadoes that decimated Moore, Oklahoma in 1999 and again in 2013. It's sure to be a twisty ride, but until then, stay kind.